In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Today we're going to take a look at a reading, or our Old Testament reading for Epiphany 5 in um, the lectionary series B. And this will be from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, we talked a few times already in Isaiah. I personally have been really enjoying our discussions on Isaiah, so it works well. Um, well it's, and it's been very efficient for you because you've, you've just stayed in the book of Isaiah and you've, you've really learned the background very thoroughly and you haven't had to jump back and forth between different Old Testament books. So. Yes, it has been very efficient in that respect. Um, uh, and it actually turns out that uh, one, of the, one of the pastors in our circuit um, uh, Pastor uh, Annie Bartell, he uh, used to be at the uh, seminary in St. Louis, and he teaches and is doing a, a further studies in the book of Isaiah. I almost said the gospel of Isaiah, but um, well, some... Some would call it that, that a gospel. Yes. And so he, he actually uh, opened up with our, with our group at the pastoral meeting, um, taking a deep dive into the book of Isaiah and some of the things that he was actually gleaning in the book for his further research in the book. So I have been um, overloaded with Isaiah, and that is what I sleep and think about um, in my free time. So, and is this a this is kind of fresh scholarship that isn't in any of the commentaries that you've maybe consulted already for this? Uh, for uh, what Annie Bartel is right, talking right, about. Right. Yeah, so he is, um, he's looking specifically, um, as far as I can tell, there's probably much more that goes into it, but he's looking at the structure at the beginning of Isaiah, so the first 12 or so uh, chapters. Now, that's what we got to talking around or talking about. There certainly could be or probably is a lot more to that. Perhaps it even expands um, outside of that too. Well, and unfortunately, our, our reading for today is from much later in Isaiah, so you might not be able to apply a lot of that. But it's, it's great that with these uh, monthly meetings where the circuit pastors get together that they're able to um, get that kind of insight. And, well, it's part of the value of, of attending those meetings, I think, in addition to finding out the things that are going on in the circuit and just to kind of support each other. Because too often, I think, as church workers, we... We feel like we're we're um, like an island and we're just working by ourselves. Uh, but it's it's nice to know that uh, uh, what else is happening out there in the circuit churches. Yeah, it really is serving as an opportunity for ongoing education, mm -hmm. keeping us as pastors sharp and theologically equipped. Uh, so we're taking a look at Isaiah chapter forty. Isaiah is typically broken into uh, three different segments: um, chapters one to thirty-nine and then chapters 40 to 55, and then chapters 56 to 66. The first and the last of those sections in Isaiah are very poetic in nature. 
And the middle section, chapter 40 to 55, that one focuses on the exodus uh, to Babylon. And also it has strong undertones of the suffering servant. That is how God is going to redeem Israel, who has been exiled to Babylon, or Judah, which has been exiled to Babylon, um, through both his servant Cyrus, but then also a suffering servant who will forgive their sins. So that's kind of the overall theme, strong undertones of redemption and salvation at the center of the book of Isaiah. Which is why it's sometimes called that, that fifth gospel. It is, and it has such clear pictures and images of, of who Jesus is going to be that we call it the, the gospel. Because the gospel, each of the other four gospels, if you think about it, are, are descriptions or uh, books about Jesus' own life and ministry. And so Isaiah, when he talks about the suffering servant, he's also giving us an image of the life of the suffering servant, and it's so vivid that it's called the fifth gospel. Today, we're going to be taking a look at uh, chapter 40, which is the first chapter of that middle section. And it really serves as sort of an introduction to the section as a whole. The main theme is stated in the uh, first, first one or two verses of chapter 40. Um, you're probably familiar with it. it. It goes, comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yes, yeah, a very famous passage from the Advent season. It is. And it sets up the, this section very well because um, it's this proclamation of redemption, of salvation, that, that things are going to be turning. And if you think from the, the Israelites' perspective, um, those in Judah and those in Israel, they have been in exile for so long at the point when they're going to be waiting for Cyrus that no doubt on their mind is this question of, has God forgotten me? Either has God forgotten me or does God even exist? Is he even stronger than the gods of these foreigners, the Assyrians and the Babylonians who came and conquered us? Because from their perspective, it sure doesn't look like that. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, there's a statement up front, beginning of chapter 40, that um, that warfare, that turmoil that they have been, been, been facing has now come to an end. So that kind of like is, uh, encapsulates chapter 40 to 45. We're going to be specifically taking a look at uh, verses um, 21 to 31. And just to give you an idea of like the progression in this chapter, um, first, it begins with um, this statement that the Lord will save you. So the Lord is going to come and save Isra the Israelites. But then it moves into it in, in verse 12. It moves into this focus of um, that the Lord um, is also able to save you. So it's kind of this question, will the Lord save us? Yes. Can the Lord save us? And that's a most certainly another resounding yes. Um, and he goes on to show that uh, Isaiah writes and shows that God is more powerful than all nations, and then he focuses on God being more powerful than all idols, than all rulers, 
And then it takes this transition into describing God as the all-powerful creator who is willing to use his power for the sake of Israel. So that's kind of the logical flow of this chapter. Now, did I hear you correctly before? You, you did not characterize this middle section of Isaiah as being as poetic as the outer sections? Except for the servant songs. Okay, because to me, this reads still very poetically. Yes, and I think um, the, the poetic portion of it is also interwoven with the oracles. Now, I, I like to study Isaiah, and, and I am certainly learning a lot from it. I don't know the Hebrew enough to be able to describe and like to say how this would be poetic. So um, what characterizes it as poetry versus chapters 40 to 55, that middle section? That's a good question. I just, re I relied on the translators to maybe bring that across. And to me, if, if they have a good sense of that, to me, what they've uh, the product that they've put out in the English translation reads very poetically. So I, I just took them as at their word that, okay, this is very poetic and we're trying to replicate that in the translation. Yeah. And that, that is one thing that we do rely pretty heavily on the translators for. Um, and they oftentimes do a relatively good job, but certainly are constrained. Um, let's, begin with the first section of this. Um, could you read verses 21 to 24? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So I'll, I'll maybe put you on the spot and ask the question of, um, uh, is there anything that, kind of comes to mind in the language that is being used here in the book of Isaiah in this section? To me, what I hear here is the strong emphasis on creation and the order of creation. Know, know your place in creation, that there's the creator and then there's everything beneath the creator, the, the, the grasshoppers and it, it just kind of emphasizes how little the God's creation is in compared to the creator himself, that you're like grasshoppers or plants that are just, they're, they're, they're barely, they can barely survive and then they're just blown away by the wind. I love that. And I, lo I love that picture of grasshoppers because we know what it feels like to be looking down at this small grasshopper and how small and insignificant that grasshopper looks and then to think of us as being that grasshopper and God as being, you know, the, the person who's looking down is a very humbling image that comes into my mind. Well, I don't know if you did this as a kid or not, but if you were fortunate enough to actually be able to, to catch the grasshopper, sometimes we would just catch them and pull their legs off and just have 
have our way with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, there's that image of, you know, you know, we're more powerful than the, those little, little tiny grasshoppers. Right. And it, it really goes to show how much we're at the mercy of God. Right. right? We don't, we have no way of protecting ourselves. Right. right. Um, no, I, I'll, I'll say that I have cotton grasshoppers. I don't know if I've gone to the extent of pulling them apart. Um, I, I've always had a hard time, like even when it comes to fishing, being able to like take a fishing hook out of a fish. That to me was, you know, just to see the pain in the fish was hard. <laughs> well, the, the reason it resonates with me is because we would be, um, from living on the farm, we would be harvesting the grain. And we knew that, well, why were the grasshoppers there? They were eating the grain. So to sacrifice a grasshopper that was eating our grain was, was actually you know, a, a positive thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're spot on with creation. Um, this is very reminiscent of creation. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Um, we, have, we have this image, these, these words of, um, for example, we talk about the beginning and foundations of the earth. Here we're told about the circle of the earth. So we kind of have this image of, of the earth and its creation and God stretching out the heavens. Um, later on in this same um, section, the rest of uh, 21 to 31, we'll hear more creation language, which I'll try to point out as we go on. But as we hear all of this creation language, um, we're, we're reminded that redemption or salvation is closely interwoven with creation. If we think about you know, creation and then we have shortly after the creation account, the fall, all of the rest of scripture is talking about redemption or what we can even say as recreation. So mankind and all of humanity, even the world itself, creation outside of us, the living creatures, we're all being recreated, we're being saved, redeemed. So it's very fitting that this portion of Isaiah is found at the centerpiece of the book of Isaiah, which focuses on redemption of Israel. So why would we be talking about God who is the creator? Well, one, he's all powerful, so he certainly has the ability to redeem, but then also creation and redemption go hand in hand. You know, that makes me also think about the readings at the Easter Vigil and how to some people it's, it's a bit of a surprise when we're celebrating Easter that the first and longest reading at the Easter Vigil is, the, is a retelling of the creation story. Well, why are we going that far back? It's because they do belong together. That is a great connection that I hadn't um, paid attention to before. And you also have things like the, the water and the spirit hovering over the mm -hmm. water, um, things that are very reminiscent of baptism, so a, a foretelling of baptism. So we do see that recreation in baptism. And Easter, um, on Easter, that's typically the time in the early church when people would be baptized. And if we're fortunate enough to have a baptism at the Easter vigil, it makes it that much richer that we can kind of emphasize that that symbolism. And, and if we don't, we simply do a remembrance of our baptism because it's all part of that same, same uh, theme and story that, that uh, weaves its way through the Easter vigil service. And, and it fits really well with Easter too, because in baptism we're reminded that just as we 
were put to death with Christ, we were also raised to new life with him. So Good Friday and Easter Sunday are both there in that Easter service. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, one other thing that I'll call out very quickly is this, this language in verse 23 of emptiness. So the princes um, are brought to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And that actually comes from the, the Hebrew word tohu, which is a word that is also used at the beginning in Genesis 1, 1 which is the, the world, the earth, was then formless and empty. Um, and so it's, a, it's describing this um, formless chaos. And so there's you know, almost this sense that God, who is the creator, is also the one who's able to bring creation back to nothing. So creates and destroys. It's all up to God. And it really goes back to that image of the grasshopper. You know, God has, we are at the whim of God to some extent. But it's a kind of a reminder, too, of how quickly things return to that chaos. When you think about the way that nature just erodes some of our man-made creations, how it just, it wears away our buildings, it wears away our roads. All the things that, that we as people create, nature just has a way of just tearing them down and, and, and restoring it to the original um, the original. Uh, you know, the original creation. It does, yeah. It always seems to go back to nature. You know, right. it, will... it reverts, it reverts. And yeah. uh, uh, just to say that, well, that's that's the place of, of man in creation is we are subject to God's creation. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it really gives us perspective when we look at just outside of the earth. Sometimes we, I think we can think pretty highly of ourselves. We'll take a look at the cities and we're like, you know, take a look at New York and we're like, that looks like it is going to last for a long time. And yet, when we take a look just outside of the earth, what is our fingerprint? Exactly. You know, maybe we have like one or two probes out there, right? <laughs> maybe a few more than that, sure. But, um, and we get that image in the next section. Would you mind reading verses 25 to 26? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So here we move from um, God as being um, all-powerful or transcendent over all rulers. Now it turns towards God, who is the transcendent creator. And we got little glimpses of that in the previous section, but now it really comes um, kind of full out there. Um, here, we're told directly to lift up our eyes and look at all that he has made, who created these, referring to the stars. Um, this, uh, for me anyways, is a very humbling thing because if, if, if you um, taking a look at like the Hubble telescope and all that we can tell and learn from um, the, our own galaxy, as well as all of the other, other galaxies out there, we learn that there are just in the Milky Way, there are 100 billion stars, scientists estimate. So, I mean, if you think about, you know, that, that's a star. We have, we are around one star of the sun and there is so many planets around the star, and here we're, we're inhabiting one 
of those planets, which is around a star, then we're reminded that there's 100 billion more stars like the sun. And then outside of that, that's just the Milky Way. Scientists estimate that there's hundreds of billions more galaxies than the Milky Way. So talk about feeling like insignificant. Mm -hmm. Now, just take a look up this look up at the stars and you'll be reminded of how humble and insignificant you are. And yet, I think that's a beautiful image because the um, here we get in this in this language that God knows all of the stars. He calls them each by name and not one of them is missing. And it, it, it serves as a nice pivot point because here we have you know, God who is creator, who is almighty. And then the question becomes like, why would he pay any attention to us? And yet he knows each one of the stars by name. So here we're, we're really getting his personal side of him, his, his characteristic, his personal characteristics and his personal concern, um, as we'll find out for Israel in the next section. Before we move on to that, though, I'll call one other thing, which is um, that this call, this reference to stars is really a, a, an attack on the Babylonians at that time. So Babylon... Um, had a number of astrologers who would um, base a lot of their religious life off of the stars. So they would worship these stars. So by Isaiah and God through Isaiah, referring to and describing God as being the creator of the stars, really it goes to show how insignificant and wrong the Babylonians are. They're worshiping creation, not the creator. And so when it comes, this again comes to the redemption, is God powerful enough to save the Israelites? Well, he most certainly is more powerful than the Babylonian gods who are, you know, quote, the stars. Rather, he is the creator of the stars who aren't even gods themselves. And that gets us into his concern for a very particular people, the Israelites, which we'll read in the last portion of Isaiah 40. So beginning at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God is described as someone who not only create and put into existence everything, but he continues to interact with history. And in this case, a very particular people, the Israelites, Jacob. Um, and here the, you really get the concern for them, and I think this comes up a lot in the Gospels as well. That is... Um, when 
Um, he talks about all those who are, who are faint or heavy, heavy burdened. He is the one who is sustaining them. He himself never grows weary, but those who cling to him in faith, those who, as in verse 31 it says, who wait for the Lord, God will renew their strength. So God, who is certainly all-powerful, never fatiguing, he is the one who also sustains those who wait on him. Uh, we also get a little bit more creation language, um, that of um, creator ex explicitly in verse 28, but then also eagles. Um, we got a little bit in the last section when it was referring to stars. This again just goes and, and builds off of that overarching uh, theme of the creator throughout this section as a whole. Now, when, when I read this passage, I... I saw it as a very binary structure, and maybe you did too, and that's why I asked the question about the poetry before, because he comes back to using the same phrase, have you not known, have you not heard, as if, okay, I laid this out before the, the sovereignty of God as the creator, and now I'm going to flip that the other way, where I was talking about how insignificant my creation is like the grasshoppers and like the grass of the field that it can just be blown away here's the corollary to that i also have that power to save and heal and rescue it that i can that i can give strength to the weary and and build them up i have that same authority yes and um as far as like the the poetry to it um it does, it is structured, this section is structured based off of questions and answers. So if you notice the way that we broke it up, those three sections, 21 to 24 being the first section, 25 to 26 being the second, 27 to 31 being the third, it begins with a question and then he goes on to answer the question. Mm -hmm. And in each case, God alone is the one who's able to do what the question is being asked. You know, it's a, it's a rhetorical device that right. Isaiah is using, and it is very beautiful. Yeah. So, it, yes, it is. Does it have a, a beauty and a poetry in and of itself? I would say most certainly. Um, and that is one thing I'd love to dig in a little bit more is the poetry outside of it. And uh, maybe I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of you here. The power of his ability to heal and make things right again or recreate things, that ties it in very nicely with the gospel reading for this, this Sunday. It does, yes. So when I read, um, especially that last section when, um, you know, God sustains those or gives strength, gives strength to the weary, um, that for me my, my mind jumps straight to Matthew 11, verse 28, which is, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So that's certainly like a portion of it. We see the fulfillment being done in Jesus. And in, for, in our um, gospel reading for Epiphany 5, we actually see a lot of this in Jesus's healing ministry, as well as his ministry of preaching. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39 is our gospel reading. And here, um, Jesus heals many who come to him. In fact, he is so popular as a healer that so many people, the whole city is described as coming to him. And Jesus spends the whole evening healing these people. Mm -hmm. 
And so there's a, it, it kind of like this question of um, I, Isaiah in Isaiah 40, who is God? Is God powerful enough? Does he exist? Um, here we get the same question in Epiphany, who is Jesus? You know, is he just a, is he just a man? That, that person who is born on Christmas Day, is he just a human? Well, no, he's God also. And he is, you know, just as God is described in Isaiah chapter 40, being all-powerful, creator of everything, Jesus also is seen and viewed as being powerful enough to heal all who are brought to him with illnesses. Paul, would you mind telling us a little bit about the sermon hymn for this upcoming Sunday? Uh, this, this is not the sermon hymn for this Sunday. It is actually the first of the communion hymns. And uh, I selected it because um, the sermon hymn for Sunday is one we've actually covered um, a number of times in previous podcasts. It's uh, um, God Loved the World So That He Gave, the hymn that's based on John 3.16. Uh, and so I thought, well, since we've already covered that one, Let's go and do one of the communion hymns because I think sometimes those kind of just get passed over because you're not giving a sermon necessarily about the sacrament communion, unless perhaps it were Maundy Thursday, which is one of those times where you would focus on that. And actually, this hymn is designated as the hymn of the day for Maundy Thursday, but there's so many other themes running through the Maundy Thursday service that I've, I've never actually entertained the idea of making this the, the hymn of the day. Um, and the hymn we're talking about is in the Lutheran service book, if you have a copy of it, it's number 617, O Lord, We Praise Thee. And it's the first hymn in that section of the hymnal of the communion hymns. And for very good reason, it takes that pride of place that of all the hymns you, that you would put as being the first one, it would be this one. And I say that because it's one of the earliest communion hymns that we as Lutherans have. I don't know that a lot of other denominations sing this hymn. To my knowledge, I would, I would say it probably does not appear in their hymnals. It's certainly a very Lutheran communion hymn. And it was one of the first ones that Luther himself had recommended for use in the orders of service that were put together during that period of time. You'll remember that in um, the um, 1520s, so this is 500 years ago, that Luther saw that there was kind of a lot of variety going on with the services that were happening in the churches that he visited. And he thought, well, I should put together an order of service just to kind of give people a guideline as to what I think belongs in a proper liturgical service for Lutherans that reflects our theology and kind of brings some consistency to worship uh, um, across the different Lutheran churches. And this is something we still kind of struggle with. with. Um, I know people have said that uh, when they go to a, a, di a different Lutheran church, they're not quite sure what they're going to get when they walk through the doors. And there is a value to being able to predict or, or at least be uh, feel like you, you're at home within the, within the church when you walk in the doors and it's there's a lot of recognizable elements so that it at least feels like church, even if it isn't exactly like your home church. It, it, that does strike me um, when you're talking about the, um, the order of service that Luther put together. Are you aware uh, whether or not um, hymns were, were sung at all before that order of service during communion? 
or was this kind of a new concept that hymns would be brought up? Um, I can't tell you that. Uh, Luther did recommend that this hymn be sung during that order of service between the consecration of the elements and the distribution of the elements. So he uh, saw a place for this just to kind of reinforce what our teachings are about the sacrament. If I had to guess, I would say probably not that there were very few of those that were sung in, or used in the way that we use them now, certainly. I think we often make that, that false assumption that, well, the church service and the way we use hymns was pretty much the same back in Luther's day as it is now. It's really not true. A lot of the music was executed by specially trained musicians and the congregation wasn't all that involved. And one of Luther's concerns was is that, well, we're not, then we're missing an opportunity to teach people the faith. Let's write some hymns that are in the vernacular that we can use to teach them the faith. We can first and foremost use them in the home for personal devotion and with families, uh, but then they gradually work their way into the, their use in within the service. With this hymn, because it was used or it found a place in so many orders of service, not just the one that, that Luther designed, but in many orders of service from the 16th century, it really has the pride of place for a communion hymn in the Lutheran service. So it's not just me saying that, but for scholars who've looked at this and have found these old orders of service from the 16th century, this hymn was there very frequently, very often cited as being the uh, communion hymn that's uh, to be preferred. And the reason for that is Luther found this text, originally it was only one stanza long. It was this, this first stanza that we have in ours, and it's, it was anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. What's interesting about this first stanza is that if you, if you read it, in the um, second line of it, it says, thou with thy body and thy blood didst, didst nourish. And that's interesting because it mentions both the body and the blood. The Catholic Church at the time of Luther, the, the sacrament was only administered with bread, not both kinds. We, that's, that's a reference to using the bread and the wine. And so what's kind of ironic is, is that here you have this hymn that was sung even before Luther's reforms took place that talks about receiving it in both kinds, with the body and the blood, even though the, the practice of the church was only, only giving you the bread. That is fascinating. Very, it was almost like foretelling what was to come. Well, and Luther used it as a point of, look, look here. We've been singing this song for, 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 for a really long time, and it says the body and the blood, not just, not just the body. But in our actual practice, we're not following it. Hmm. So he could actually point to this song and say, look, the older practice is to give us both kinds, both the bread and the wine, not just the bread. And so it, it helped support his point that we're doing this wrong. We mm -hmm. should be having both kinds. The uh, version that we have here in our hymnal um, 
it has three stanzas in it, and the second and third stanzas were those that were written by Martin Luther. They were added. And as you can imagine, as a good teaching theologian, he thought, well, we'll have three stanzas here, and, and we'll uh, emphasize all the parts of the Trinity. So he goes on into the second stanza talking about the holy body of Jesus given into death. So maybe the first stanza emphasizes uh, uh, God himself. The second one emphasizes Christ and the work of Christ and the sacrifice he made. And then you would expect that there would be some reference to the Holy Spirit in the third stanza. And indeed there is. When you get to the end, it talks about, let not thy good spirit forsake us. So nice Trinitarian formula there. We have three stanzas and then a reference to the Trinity. One unusual thing about this hymn, at least to our modern ears, is that you have these, these tags halfway through the, the hymn and then at the very end of the hymn where it says, oh Lord, have mercy. Well, what's that all about? You just have these, these insertions of, oh Lord, have mercy. Why are they there? It's because the structure of this hymn goes back to a much earlier form called in German, Eliza. Well, what does that mean? It's, it's derived from Kyrie eleison, which is Lord have mercy. And in the, the um, structure of these hymns, it was kind of a call and response. So say for the largely illiterate population, maybe you had a song leader that would sing the beginning of the hymn, the beginning of the verse, and then the response would be, O Lord, have mercy. That was the, the response of the people, perhaps even singing this in procession. So it made it easy that you had a, a, maybe a song leader beginning the, the verse, and then you had the response, a call and response structure. And we actually have a, a number of hymns like that that are in our communion section of the hymnal, some modern ones that use that formula, where if you're in procession for communion, you don't have a book in your hand, you're, you're in motion, you can actually sing along with the communion hymn. So this would be an example of that, that if we were singing this on Sunday, you didn't have a hymnal in your hand, you could certainly throw in the, oh Lord, have mercies, because you know the words. You know, I've noticed something similar um, when I'm helping with pastor, with the distribution. Pastor and I do not have a hymnal in front of us right, and we're going up right, there. Right. So there's often this, you know, it'll, it'll go through a number of, stanzas that we do not know but whenever we come to the to the refrain we oftentimes do know it so we'll be quiet for the entire time and then when the refrain comes pastor and i will join on in with the rest of the congregation and i can see this being very valuable in that sense it is it is and and you're not just limiting it to communion hymns the ones that i was uh thinking about in my head were are ones like uh eat this bread where that's a taze refrain where there's uh, uh, a long refrain that that just repeats between all the stanzas, where you could where you could add in that refrain, um, or um, uh, you satisfy the hungry heart. That's another one. Both of them have kind of come to us from the from the Catholic tradition, but again, they have that same that same. Uh, if you, it's not a problem necessarily, but that same issue of what kind of music do you do when you have people processing up in communion. Well, that's one way to solve the problem is you have a refrain that they can just sing without, without having a hymnal in their hands. 
as I mentioned, Luther was the author of the, the second and third stanzas. So for that reason, it also commends us as a uniquely Lutheran communion hymn deserving that pride of place of being the first one in the communion section of the hymnal. I have noticed that um, no one or no one, no other poets have tried to write a set of words to this so that we could use this melody or this tune uh, for any other purpose. It's got a very unique, that is a peculiar poetic meter. And so this text, this communion text, has always just been paired with this melody and, and no one has attempted to write another text to it to, um, uh, you know, to sing it at other times in the service. So it's, it's definitely, it has a very unique and special purpose as a communion. I can, I can imagine that it would be pretty challenging, especially with the repetition, oh Lord have mercy. Mm -hmm. That section to be able to replicate it with other words other than oh Lord have mercy would be, you know, maybe a, Maybe someone could do it, but it would definitely be a challenge for whoever was given that task. And when you think about that, yeah, that, that, that refrain, oh Lord have mercy, you think, well, this seems like a very happy tune on the whole. Why does it have this Lord have mercy in, which seems like a, like a, like a penitential, mm -hmm. kind, of a, kind of a sad uh, um, refrain to insert there. But again, it goes back to that history of, oh Lord have mercy, that's simply the refrain. And actually that comes up in our, in our liturgies in um, uh, when you think about matins and vespers, that our response to the readings is, is oh Lord, have mercy upon us. My mind actually went also to uh, the prayers of the church. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like it's a prayer too, where mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're putting up a request and then we ask for a response from the congregation. But yeah, in either case, there, it seems to have a resurfacing throughout the liturgy. Because this hymn comes from the, the time of the Reformation, you may think, well, that means it was originally written in German, and indeed it was written in German. So how do, how do we um, arrive at this translation that we use in our hymnal? And it was carried forth from the Lutheran hymnal, the, the one from 1941 that a lot of us uh, grew up with, and most of that translation was derived from a translation done by Richard Massey. The balance of it, it's kind of unknown exactly who did the rest of the translation. It was probably a composite effort. Sometimes that happened with hymnals, is, is that, that it was just a group effort or maybe a committee got together and, and used Massey's translation as kind of a starting point and then they just, uh, translated into what was a, a familiar vernacular English, uh, because Massey being a, um, uh, from the Church of England, and maybe there's phrases that in, in, in British English just didn't seem to work well, in American English they were adjusted. But the translation that we have now comes largely from that Lutheran hymnal from 1941. What's interesting about Massey's translations, and I've mentioned this in other podcasts, um, he has seven hymns credited to him in our Lutheran service book. He, one of his, one of his um, important uh, emphasis when he was translating was he wanted to make sure that he did not change the doctrinal content of the original German. So when you're doing a translation like that, you have to decide 
Are you going to favor that accuracy on one end of the scale, or are you going for maximum poetic beauty on the other end of the scale? He tended to favor doctrinal accuracy. And sometimes his translations have been criticized because maybe they're a little bit stiff or wooden or uninteresting, but they are doctrinally accurate. You don't have to worry about, about things creeping in that, that hmm. don't belong there. So maybe they aren't the most poetically gifted translations that are out there, but they're, they're, they definitely reflect accurately Lutheran theology. And it's also nice to know, especially with um, Martin Luther having his, his hand behind it to be able to glean into the more accurate theology of Martin Luther himself, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what he was thinking, especially during this early, earlier portion of his um, ministry. Mm -hmm. um, so for today, why don't we sing that uh, first stanza, which, as you remember, is anonymous, although cleaned up by Martin Luther so that it would be uh, uh, useful and accurate and compatible with Lutheran theology um, from that, uh, that time, from the time of the Reformation. O Lord, we praise Thee, bless Thee, and adore Thee, in thanksgiving bow before Thee. Thou with thy body and the blood didst nourish our weak souls that they might flourish. O Lord, have mercy. May thy body, Lord, born of Mary, that our sins and sorrows did carry, and thy blood for us plead in all trials, fear, and need. O Lord, have mercy. One other interesting thing before we leave this is, um, in addition to this hymn being cited in a lot of church orders from the 16th century, it also appeared in a collection, surprise, surprise, of Catholic hymns from later in that century. And you would have thought if, it's a, if it was in a collection of Catholic hymns, they would probably have gone back to the pre-Luther version. No, they didn't. They all kept Luther's revisions which is kind of kind of comical when you think about it, but uh, um, there, you, there it is. Do you, do you know what year it was brought in? I'm just thinking about, especially, I think, it, is it the Council of Trent when they made it available, or the well, Second Vatican Council when they oh, no, made no, 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 the no, body no. and blood available to? No, 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 much earlier than that. The, the collection that, the, that it was found in was from 1567. So um, really only about 40 years after uh, Luther had you know, made these changes. So um, it's, it's just, maybe it just has had, had caught on in so many places that, uh, that um, they, um, they just didn't even think about what Luther had changed or what he had tinkered with there. Um, again, going back to that first stanza where we're saying the body and the blood it apparently didn't rub them the wrong way that what they were confessing in this hymn was not in agreement with, with, 
what they actually, what they actually practice. Yeah. <laughs> so words mean things, and and you want your you want your hymns to square with your doctrine, and maybe we were just always just a little bit more uh, fastidious and careful about that. Mm -hmm. We continue with the litany from daily prayer. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.